You're listening to the Brookside Church Sermon Podcast. We're a progressive and inclusive community of faith in the heart of Morris County, New Jersey, reminding everyone that they are the beloved child of God. For more information, visit us online at brooksidechurch.org. So, let me start today by confessing something to you. It's probably good to start out on the right foot there. So you know a bit more about me and a bit more about where I'm coming from. My confession is this, that I don't often think about sin. Um, at least I don't think about it often enough anyway. Um, and I hang out with enough, you know, quote-unquote progressives to know that this might be your experience as well. Or I suppose I think about sin, but only at a distance. It crosses my mind for some spare reason, but I keep it far enough away from me to keep it an object. I keep it at arm's distance. It's not something that's mine. I didn't do that. I didn't make that. It's outside of me, and I had no part in its creation. Or maybe it's just that I'm good at dressing sin up. I beautify it. I name it otherwise. Anything to keep it from being mine, anything to keep it at arm's distance. And I think, in part, that's because of the heavy, indeed grave connotations it comes from, or it comes with for me, having grown up in evangelical circles. Maybe you share my sentiments. And I think that's okay, given the ways that sin has been used as a scare tactic. Right? It's been wielded as a, a weapon, a power play. And it's been wielded against many of us because of our sexuality, our gender, our race, our mother tongue, our nationality, our religion, and beyond. So given my past, and maybe your past as well, my personal immediate reaction is to think of sin as something irreparable, irredeemable, pure evil. I keep it out there. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to think about it. But in that moment of terror, I'm reminded of the Greek word hamartia. This won't be a linguistic lesson, but it's the word that we translate as sin. But it could use a bit of sprucing up in our English vernacular. Hamartia simply means to miss the mark to air. Now, injustice, there's a word I like to use. I think about it a lot. I throw it around all the time. And that's because I'm a good progressive. Maybe some of you are as well. Now, let me be clear that justice, injustice, these are deeply Christian words. I'm not trying to put that aside. There's no way around that. Those things are integral to this faith that we inherit and adopt. But sometimes I think I like those words, justice and justice, because I can hold them outside of me. They sit nicely on a bookshelf. I can put them neatly above my fireplace if I had one, and my guests would compliment them. Justice and injustice squirm a lot less than sin, and they certainly don't ooze as much. Sin makes me uncomfortable. 
And I don't like that, and you probably don't either. But I think we need to be. And here's what I think is going on when we're uncomfortable in a situation like this. I don't think it's just that we lack comfort. I don't think it's just an absence of comfort. I think that what's actually going on in this discomfort is that we're beginning to center the comfort, the wellness, the health, the shalom of someone or something else. So if I begin to talk about racism, most of us should probably get uncomfortable. And by that, I don't mean that we should cease to talk about racism. Rather, most of us should probably be uncomfortable because we realize that we have to center the lives of other folks if we're going to toil faithfully in this work. So if we're to be participants in anti-racist work, then that means that my straight white guy comfort cannot be the priority in that work. So as we here today talk about trash and climate change, we should probably be uncomfortable. And that, I think, is because we realize that we have to begin to center the life and well-being of Earth before ourselves. We're uncomfortable because we see our reflections tangibly in the images of landfills, oil spills, pipelines. We're uncomfortable because we realize that we're caught up in this stuff, that we can't escape it, that we are in part, in a big part, to blame. We're uncomfortable because we begin to feel the stickiness of sin. But this morning and and moving forth into the world, I'd like to invite us to hold on to that discomfort. Sit with it. It's okay. It's going to be okay. And I think that we might together find that that discomfort is actually an invitation. What exactly it's an invitation to, let's dive in together and find out in communion. Psalm 51, a song of repentance, is one that many of us might know well. Asks to have mercy on me, O God, and to wash me whiter than snow, are woven into popular contemporary worship songs and classic hymns. And I must acknowledge, even if only briefly, this problematic ideology of associating purity with whiteness and, and make clear that this is not what I'm putting forth as a model, but I want to name that. Um, rather, I'd like to get at how we define this sin in the psalm. How do we translate this language of transgression from this ancient psalm? How do we understand ourselves in this poem of repentance, this song about sin? Perhaps... We have not obliterated our enemies with great violence or failed the people we are leading or had an affair that ended in murder and public humiliation or eaten fruit from a forbidden tree or ignored the prophets calling for revolution around us 
or eaten impure food, or forgotten to care for the orphan or widow, or have been complicit in the unjust power structures and systems that uphold our society and oppress the most vulnerable. By the end of my surveying of some typical sin stories of the Hebrew Bible, I think I inadvertently answered some of my questions about the sins of our time. I know this might sound a bit traditional or conservative or even biblical, but I am not sure our transgressions are that different from biblical writers or figures such as King David or Moses or Eve or Adam. Most of us here are most likely complicit in systems that do injustice to the poor. We do not care for orphans and widows, at least on most of our days. I wonder if more often than we might think, we might do violence to others, collectively and individually to our neighbors of all creaturely varieties, in Mendham, in Chatham, in Newark, and beyond. And similarly, we might unintentionally inflict violence daily on creation to the body of the earth, which most of us consider a product or some part of the divine, of who we know and love God to be. In this psalm, sin is expressed with a myriad of terms, transgression, iniquity, evil, guilty, and sin. Pasha, the the Hebrew noun for transgression, is used throughout the Hebrew Bible to connote a breach of trust, a rebellious act, or what is most generally understood in the English language as sin. Avon, or iniquity, conveys blame, guilt, or an act worthy of punishment. Ra'ah, which is evil, in short means adversity, but is used throughout the Hebrew Bible to refer to diseases or illness in the body, to times of trial or hardship, and to things that are judged as displeasing or simply bad. But sin, chata, the term used most in this psalm, is simply sin. Most biblical Hebrew lexicons and dictionaries do not have any further qualifiers for this noun and verb beyond sin. One could easily make the argument that there was a common working knowledge of what exactly sin was in the ancient world. In fact, it's quite likely that these people of Yahweh had a collective understanding of what acts qualified as sin. Even though we can't get into the inconsistencies and nuances of Israelite communities in the Bible right now, we can recognize that stories of the Hebrew Bible come from various contexts of imperial occupation of exile, of wandering, and monarchical kingships. And sin happens to take a central role in many of these stories, whether in relation to a small agricultural community, an enemy of war, or the people's own leader. And I gave you a taste of some of these greatest hits of Hebrew Bible sins just a minute ago. And these warnings against wrongdoing are repeated throughout the writings of the law, the prophets, and the poets. The same concerns are voiced again and again. Do not ignore the forgotten. Stop injustice against the powerless. Care for those who are most vulnerable. So I return to the question that I first posed. Where do we see ourselves in this narrative of sin?
Unfortunately, we don't have as helpful or practical of a common language of sin today. And so I think many people have written it off as we seek less guilt-ridden notions of justice and equality. But if we take a moment to think of the most vulnerable and forgotten, perhaps we think of our brothers and sisters of color who live in Newark, or maybe our minds wander to children afflicted by war and violence in Syria, West Africa, or Gaza. And rightfully so, given the horrific stories we see relayed in the news daily. But what if this morning, when we think of the most powerless and abused and ignored, we expand our gaze to think of the earth? What if when we think of the near erasure of the Great Barrier Reef or the rapid erosion of small Pacific islands because of rising sea levels, Papua New Guinea, Kiribati, Tuvalu, Palau, just to name a few. What if when we think of these atrocities, we think of sin? Might it be that we collectively and individually are sinning against the earth each day with the things that we consume and the waste we produce? Perhaps we have not requested for Bathsheba to come lie in our bed or created a calf of gold, but perhaps we have done just the same by the dumping grounds that we have made of the earth. We have sinned against God and all of creation, and I fear we may not see the necessity of our repentance before it's too late. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Your abundant mercy blot out my transgressions. So many of us know that our tradition is rife with stories of running away. Adam and Eve hiding in the garden from God. Moses trying to pass the burden of his calling onto Aaron. Jonah fleeing all the way into the belly of a large fish. We too might attempt to flee. Only to find that God meets us where we are. And our psalmist today reminds us of that, that we are ever in the presence of God, even if our awareness of God is missing. And even still, we have this tendency to run away from this discomfort from God. But really, I think it is a tendency that we have to run away from our sins, to run away from our trash to explain them away, to recycle them away. And we think that by running away from them, they'll eventually disappear, that they might someday biodegrade. But we know that we're in fact running away from the inescapable. But I think what's perhaps worse than this running away, which isn't great, but what I think is perhaps worse is when we try to prioritize our sins away. We reduce our sins by lifting up other parts of our lives in which we are righteous or comfortable. We praise our most delightful characteristics as a way of 
erasing our flaws. And don't let me be misunderstood today. Our acts of righteous justice, compassionate service, and personal sanctity are indeed good. They're very good. But what is bad, what might even be despicable, is our use of those good things to cover up our sins, our flaws, our trash. This way of prioritizing our sins away. Let me offer an example of this. Right now, as we gather here, this very moment, here today, Brookside Church, Stanley Church, whoever you are, right now there's a mass of floating garbage in the Pacific Ocean, somewhere between the size of Texas and Russia. Think about that. Enough trash, enough garbage, possibly to amount to the size of Russia. And what's worse than that is that I think in most of our day-to-day lives, in our day-to-day habits, most of us don't give a shit about it. And what's perhaps more disturbing, more appalling, is that most of us care more about a word that I may have just used than the fact that we might be, we are, actively killing our planet, this beautiful planet, of which we have no other. That right there is how we prioritize our sins away. We center our own comfort about what words we do or do not use, our own piety as a way of minimizing the grave damage we do, the violence we participate in daily. We might be concerned when there's trash in our church, but we might pay little attention to the desecration of our own earth. If there's any appropriate response to this I think it can only be grace made manifest in repentance and by repentance I don't mean guilt or shame far from it it's a mistranslation of the Greek word metanoia by repentance I mean turning around which is at the heart of the term metanoia If there's any appropriate way to confront the haunting presence of our waste, we must first turn around. We must first face it. We must begin to see ourselves in the reflection of climate change. We must face that we have been gardeners, not of food, but of landfills. We have carefully participated in the growing, the cultivation of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. I'm guilty, you see a lot of my trash here today. You can find my name and address on them. We've cultivated toxic soils with our consumption of GMO crops housed in styrofoam cups. 
in our sanctuaries, in our homes, at our lunches, with our friends. So let me repeat myself. If there's any way to confront the haunting presence of our waste, we must first turn around and we must first face it. And I think by facing it, we might realize, we might in fact remember that there's work ahead and it's uncomfortable, that there's nothing but an opportunity to toil in faith. And that faith is always an invitation. That's an invitation to toil without end. Amen. Um, So now I'm going to ask you to take in your hands the piece of trash that you received when you came in, probably a bottle. And I also want to confess to you that my sins are before you this morning, quite literally. Um, This trash was collected um, from a dumpster and from Stanley Church and from my trash bin. Um, So the Ben and Jerry's, the flavor Chunky Monkey, that one is mine. The organic black beans from Trader Joe's, I used those. Um, This one... I'll hold for our meditation. It was from an event I went to. I used this cup to drink coffee, and this is my name tag, so it doesn't get any more explicit than that. Um, So please take this in your hands and take a moment to feel its curves and ridges, its lips and openings, its bumps and smoothness. These materials formed in these particular ways should feel familiar to us. These vessels are ones that we use daily and praise for their usefulness. However, these items are not ones we display in our homes or brag about to our friends. They are created only to meet their end each day. They allow us to do what we wish each day and then join the communion of all trash beings. These things belong to us one moment and in another they are gone. We buy them, we use them, we dispose of them, we throw them away. But where is away? From the earth they come, to the earth they shall return. But do these things, these things that we use on a daily basis, really ever return to the earth? Not only do these items in our hands not have the ability to decompose or give back to the earth, there is a great likelihood that they will harm the earth in the near future. If we are using widely accepted U.S. waste Statistics, only one out of ten of the recyclable items that we hold will actually be recycled. For the plastic that does not make it into the recycling, it will take 500 years to decompose. And if that recyclable bottle or can is not recycled and it does not make it to a landfill, perhaps it will land in a stream or river by mistake. Perhaps some body of water will carry it to a larger body of water which happens to 1.15 to 2.45 billion tons of plastic each year that are carried into the ocean via streams and rivers. And maybe sometime in its life, this will join the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Yes, we must acknowledge the potential fate of these pieces of trash. 
Though it is surely not our intention, they may very well end up in the largest of five offshore accumulation zones located between California and Hawaii. This patch, a new island that our nation has formed, is somewhere between the size of Texas and Russia and consists of about 100,000 tons of trash. The 1.8 trillion pieces of trash in the Great Patch do not come from nowhere. They come from the away spaces, from the places where a country of consumers have disposed of their waste for centuries. This great floating mass, an entanglement of fishing nets and 12-pack rings and plastic bottles, are decimating marine life and making their way back to the human food chain in the form of toxic chemicals in these animals' flesh. These things in our hands do not go away. With these things, though we may not mean to do so, we are doing violence to the earth. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 